Today is Sunday, January 30th, 2022, and this is episode 261 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Hello, Jerry. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. How are you? Good. I feel like, you know, when we record on Sundays, it reminds me of the old commercials for Monster Truck at the Stadium, Sunday! Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. (laughs) That's right. I don't know why. It just seemed like it. Monster vulnerabilities. The, uh, Pontiac Silverdome. That's oh my right. gosh, there we go. For those of you uh, old timers from Michigan. Uh, indeed. So, Good times. Anyway. Anyhow, uh, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this show are ours and do not represent those of our employers or anyone else. Often, often the case. All right, so we do have a couple of uh, pretty good stories tonight. First one comes from Bleeping Computers, and the title here is Hackers Are Taking Over CEO Accounts with Rogue OAuth Apps. And uh, so the, the situation here, is, I, I think, is primarily a, an acute problem in uh, Microsoft, uh, you know, MS Office 365, uh, where adversaries are have gotten pretty clever. They've created some signed applications or otherwise compromised legitimate applications and start sending out token requests to uh, executives, senior executives at victim companies and senior executives at victim companies uh, often don't have the, um, the time or attention to really figure out what's going on and just, uh, you know, they want to make the pain go away. So they click accept, accept, accept. And, and by the way, in this case, if, you know, if they don't accept, the, the rat bastard uh, attackers have crafted it so it just goes into a loop and, you know, ultimately the the CEO is going to hit the, the accept button. So the, if they hit no, it just circles back around to the yes, no question again? Uh, of course. Huh. Clever. It's clever. And then once, the, once they get that, once the adversary gets that access, uh, they use that token to start sending more email throughout the company. And this allows them to do all manner of, uh, of thing, including traditional business email compromise, like, you know, stealing, uh, diverting payroll, diverting, uh, accounts, payable, um, money transfers and so on and so forth. Uh, installing ransomware, you know, lots of, uh, lots of things. Now it's, it's kind of interesting, um, in that this is a, it's a, it's kind of a fish without a fish, right? We, we've been teaching people for years not to enter your password into, into site, you know, strange sites. But, you know, when you're prompted from your IT provider, Microsoft, to accept, you know, something, you know, that's, I, I would say, not necessarily been part of the training program that we've been uh, trying to get our employees uh, attuned to. Yeah, it's a new vector that a lot of these folks have never seen before or 
I should say they haven't seen it as an attack before. They've probably seen these sorts of pop-ups from time to time of something saying, hey, I need this permission. And you mentioned earlier, a lot of these folks don't have necessarily the time, the knowledge, the insight, that the whatever it is, to really critically analyze those permissions. And like you said, they want to make the pain go away, especially if you get into a circular accept loop Eventually, they're just going to hit yes and move on with their day. And that suddenly has granted a ton of permissions to an attacker. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's obviously once once an, an adversary has access to some senior executive's email account and the ability to send email and read email, by the way, there's typically lots of uh, opportunities for insider trading and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, underlings you know other employees in the company are typically much more pliable when they they receive an email that otherwise by the way looks completely legitimate because it is actually coming from the CEO right and then that gets a lot tougher of knowing okay is this normal business practice or is bob my ceo really needing to send you know 2 million dollars to his new business partner in nigeria yeah so i i I think the the takeaway is you know, really we have to start factoring in this sort of um, this sort of request rogue requests for uh, for permissions into our our training programs. Well, and and do you allow the average user to make this request uh, to to answer this request? Yes, no. I mean, I don't know. The various systems may or may not even allow you to even let a third party in your organization who isn't an admin decide to let this new app in i don't know that's a good point that's a good point i it, it, it i think it depends on how this is being uh, perpetrated on, on whether or not you're, you're actually able to do that yeah it reminds me a little bit of cell phone apps like asking for certain permissions to do certain things mm-hmm. and in theory right it's good that it exposes what that app is trying to do, what it wants to access, what permissions it's looking for. But I think the vast majority of people, through no fault of their own, just click through yes because they want to play Flappy Birds and don't care that it's <laughs> given them permission to track them 24-7. Right. Not that that – I'm just using that as an example. I'm not saying that that particular app does that. Now, some of the, some of the apps – actually have um, you know, relatively benign-sounding names like upgrade or document or user info. So, so you can, you can kind of see where if you're not paying close attention, it might, you know, it, might, it might not trigger any alarm bells. Yeah, IT is just doing something. Right. right. Yeah, it's, a, it's an ugly little vector. All right, so moving on, uh, this next story is a report from uh, F-Secure, which I thought was quite fascinating, uh, about a phishing simulation that they did with four large organizations covering about 83,000 or 82,000 individuals. The, um, the, the specific findings were just um, maybe a little counterintuitive, but probably highlights some of the challenges that, that we really have to wrestle with, but that I don't think we have. So I'll, um, I'm going to quote from this article here because I, I, I don't think I could say it any better. 
Two of the organizations we targeted had employees and departments described as IT and DevOps, roles which focus on computer technologies. In one of these organizations, those technical departments were just as susceptible to our emails as the rest of the business. 26% clicking on DevOps, in, in DevOps, 24 in IT, 25 across the rest of the organization. The other organization, however, we saw these technical departments show far higher susceptibility than the organizational average. 30% clicking in DevOps, 21% in IT, and an overall organizational rate of 11%. Quite interesting. Similarly, these groups were no better than the rest of the organization at reporting emails as suspicious. In one organization, IT and DevOps came third and six out of nine departments in terms of reporting. In the other organizations, DevOps was the 12th best at reporting out of 16 departments. IT was 15th. Finally, those that clicked were asked if they had noticed a phishing email in their inbox in the past. Across both organizations, IT and DevOps self-reported it to have noticed a phishing attack at a higher rate than the rest of the organization, suggesting that either they received more phishing attacks or considered themselves better at spotting them. Now, here's the money. Two broad conclusions can be drawn from these results. First, with their additional accesses, the consistent or indeed advanced susceptibility of technical staff and lack of enhanced reporting represents heightened risk. Second, heightened general IT literacy and likely phishing awareness does not reduce susceptibility to email phishing. But, but Jerry, the training, Jerry. <laughs> but the training, that's right. Yeah, that's, you know, I have rallied for a long, long, long time that Phishing is a psychological attack and you've got to wrap technical controls around the idea that people are going to be victims of a psychological attack. And I think we still have this feeling in a good chunk of the industry that falling for a phishing attack, even that verbiage is wrong, is a moral or educational failure. Yeah, it's a, it's a failure of... Uh knowledge or oh you know if, if you're just if you're just savvy enough you'll you're right you're insulated whereas i disagree i think that the phishing attack will be as successful as it needs to be and that the sophistication can go higher or lower and eventually you will find a methodology that will get the right type of person to comply with whatever it is you're trying to get them to do and that that click is going to happen and that you need to prepare for that and minimize the damage. Absolutely. The other now, interesting finding was um, that the rate at which people report phishing is pretty much solely dependent on the process that you have to report fishes. Yeah. I thought that was interesting too. And I know we haven't gotten to that section yet. Um, I mean, the, the, the spoiler warning there is that the easier it is for someone to report phishing, the higher the report level, which makes sense. Um, but I also don't know that we've been as consistent as an industry that reporting phishing is useful. Right? Avoid it. Ignore it. Delete it. Reporting feels like, to your IT or security department, feels like a, a more recent development that maybe isn't as widespread in... I think there's probably lots of people who just spot a fish and don't bother reporting it, even if they can. But 
yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and you know, kind of as they hinted this later on of, of when somebody does report it, you need to automate the response because a manual response is not ideal, which is true. I mean, if you, but it's, I don't know, I'm kind of wandering around this topic of, sure, if I get people reporting the fish, then what do I do with it? I guess it depends on what it is and how it works. Yeah, it it does. It really does need to be automated in some in some way. I mean, he, mm-hmm. few companies have the wherewithal nowadays to employ a small army of people to receive, uh, you know, phishing complaints to go off and do something with them. So right. either either it's automated or it just goes into the bit bucket. Yeah, I mean, if you see like it's going to a, a domain, you could blacklist the domain and you're proxy or dns i mean there's things you could do you could see how how nasty it is and go look for indicators of compromise as many clicked on but those are all like high leverage expensive activities exactly in in a large organization exactly but it was uh, look i'm not saying that phishing training isn't useful what i am saying is that i feel the industry has over rotated into phishing training as the end of the solution you just have to train them enough yeah i've long thought it also sets people up for a hard fall when when they actually do you know become a victim of phishing you know that the the company's management will say like good gosh we spent all this money on training and jerry still clicked on the fish and you know he did take the training so clearly the problems with jerry Right. Well, and I think part of that is the marketing of these training companies is the primary education point on phishing defense that these companies are hearing. Right. So our training's good. Must be the person. Yeah. Which then builds in this negative feedback loop for somebody reporting a successful fish because they now have shame and fear and concern wrapped around the fact that they fell for something. Again, that's even the wrong verge, that they were the victim of something. Right. You know, this is like if you were afraid the police were going to make fun of you when you report that your house got broken into, which I don't know, could happen, but we're, you know, in general doesn't, right? I mean, I'm not getting into the politics of that, but the point is I feel like we don't do a, a good job as industry dealing with these psychological attack vectors. Yeah, there's some bl- victim blaming going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But very interesting study. Of course, I mean, it's coming from a vendor, so. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, obviously you have to, I mean, look, every every one of the security vendors has a has a, a horse in the race. So it's not hard to think what F-Secure's motivation behind this report is, right? They're a tech... A, security technology provider and they their their incentive is to convince you that you know training is not the answer you need you know you need uber malware prevention controls and only they can help you right so i thought the speed aspect towards the end of the article was also kind of interesting if you want to talk about that no go ahead okay yeah basically they kind of mapped out over time the speed for first click and the speed to report. And what they basically found, which makes sense, is that in the first five minutes of an email being delivered, more than three times the number of people who report the email suspicious had become a victim to it. So victim 
hood happens early in that delivery. And then that slows down as reporting starts picking up because it takes longer in their, in their opinion, it takes a longer amount of time for someone to analyze the email and regard it as suspicious and report it than it does for them to just click it or do whatever it is that the phishing email is asking them to do. Um, which I thought was interesting as well as removing barriers to some sort of phishing report. And what they like is some sort of easy phishing report button in the email client, right. which a lot of different vendors offer today. Right. So their, their takeaway insights I thought, and I agree with one humans will remain susceptible to phishing attacks, no matter their role, which is interesting because we kind of skipped over that a little bit. Uh, there's probably a sense of invulnerability and arrogance amongst IT people that they'll spot phishing easier than, you know, somebody in sales, not according to this study. Two, support those who are more likely to spot a phishing attack with a single, simple-to-use reporting method. Sure. And three, speed is of the essence. So arrange your security center to be able to triage and respond to the highest threat emails quickly. That's an interesting one that I think that is highly variable depending on the size, robustness of your security organization, your existing tooling controls, you know, what you can do with that. Uh, so that's kind of a more of a, you know, they might be trying to sell something there. But I don't disagree. I mean, the earlier you can spot a phishing campaign and stop it, the better. But that may be something that needs to be more automated. I mean, if, if you've got an analyst somewhere in the loop there, that's probably going to be slower than the attack vector. Uh, absolutely. You know, it's, it, it also is, uh, it also highlights the importance of, uh, of some guidance that Microsoft has been given uh, for a while. And, and uh, actually some regulations are starting to pick up on it too, about segregating, um, you know, your IT staff's workloads so that they are, um, they're not performing you know, kind of casual business tasks like email you know, editing PowerPoints, Excel, and, and whatnot on the same computer that they use for administering systems. You know, this, the, the idea is the computer they use for administering systems has no access to the internet, is not used for accessing emails, for, you know, doing any, any of that kind of um, soft business stuff. It's only for performing administrative purposes. And you can see some of the benefit in, uh, you know, in, in that strategy, when you start to think about it, people are as susceptible sometimes, maybe even more, uh, as, as the average person to these kinds of attacks. Yeah, that's great. Until we send everybody to work from home with a laptop. There are even still, there's, uh, there's still some, you have to send them home with two. And 16 monitors. Well, as long as they're not the swanky, curvy ones. <laughs> and I'll have you know, casual editing of PowerPoint. My PowerPoint editing is never casual, sir. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to offend any, any hardcore Microsoft Office uh, people there. Yep. All right, moving on. Next Next uh, story comes from Dark Reading. The title is Log4J Proved Public Disclosure Still Helps Attackers. This is going to cause some serious heartburn. So, yeah, go get your tomatoes and 
pitchforks and torches and I think every you know this is a arm versus or a CISC versus risk you know Mac versus Windows. So um, the 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 net of the story I'll just kind of t- go to the bottom line up front is a number of different studies, including one performed by Kenna, have identified that there's really no marginal benefit to either the, the consumers of technology or to their, uh, to their user base from security researchers releasing proof of concept code. And you know, the, the, their point is that the only, ben- the only beneficiary of proof of concept code is threat actors. And, and they, they go on to say that in uh, many studies, it takes, I think it was quoted at seven years on average from the time of vulnerability is disclosed with no proof of concept code until some threat actor actually finds proof of concept code. And so they're, you know, the, the, the net point is in absence of that pr- proof of concept code, uh, we would be safer. Now, obviously, this is kind of a religious debate because proof of concept code is often used as leverage to get technology providers to actually patch stuff. You know, there's been a long history of many companies who just kind of ignore security researchers who are reporting some kind of vulnerability until proof of concept code is released and they have no choice because they're Customers are in extreme risk. They either have to shut it off or switch to a competitor or something like that. And the the technology provider actually has to take some action. This is a tough one for me. Uh, I I, I feel like there's also some second order effects here of POC code is released. Then we see this flurry of companion research activity that finds similar bugs, vulnerabilities in similar classes of software or the same software or or hardware. And in theory, that makes us all stronger and safer, assuming that we can roll out the patches. You know, we've seen, for instance, we get get these clusters of certain types of of attacks that are discovered, like side channel attacks were really popular a couple years ago. And, you know, certain classes of attacks suddenly pop up get popular people then start testing against other things we find out about it you know and in theory we all get stronger however i think at the same time we are there's there's no denying that when we have trivial poc exploit code out there we see it very quickly get picked up by threat actors and used against our infrastructure often before we've had time to patch and a lot of the quote-unquote influencers out there will say we'll just patch faster and just you know, get your crap together. Well, they rarely have worked in a corporate environment and rarely understand how difficult that can be sometimes. Uh, I don't know. This is, I struggle with this one, right? This is the responsible disclosure debate in some ways all over again. Yeah. So, so you kind of have to separate it out a little bit, or at least in my mind, I'm separating out a little bit because in the case of log4j, they actually lay out the timeline on, on November 24th, the, the, the log4j dev team was informed about the vulnerability and the 
proof of concept code was released on um, December 9th. So, you know, it's not, you can't really say, well, they were dragging their feet in that, in that instance. Right. I also don't know, by the way, I don't know with certainty that somebody didn't independently find, um, you know, the, the proof of concept or create proof of concept code outside of the security researcher, you know, but one, one, um, I think one thing that really gnaws at me is that a lot of this stuff in a lot of the, the urgency is not done for the sake of protecting customers or people or whatnot. They're done for the sake of marketing. Right. And that's, that's what, I guess that that is what bothers me. Um, you know, I, I certainly can see both sides of the fence in terms of releasing proof of concept code. I, you know, if, if in the case of log4j, the researchers would have re- released it after 90 days instead of two and a half weeks, you know, maybe we would not be having this debate right now. Um, I, I, you know, you, you said it well, right? A lot of, a lot of the talking heads will point, you know, we just have to patch faster, which absolutely is true. But a lot of, you know, there's a lot of nuance in that statement because, you know, more and more of this, this, especially like log4j, it's not its own application. It's a piece of code that gets rolled into another piece of code that gets rolled into another piece of code that gets rolled into another piece of code. And so certainly end users of log4j and many, I think, did patched pretty quickly, but then you're beholden to, you know, the VMwares and and other companies who who consume other downstream software that then in turn consumes Log4j, and everybody along the way has to update, and that takes time. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, you know, I think the proponents of this would say, well, this is keeping the vendors honest, and we've seen plenty <laughs> of vendors who have neglected to patch until a public POC is put out there. And to those point, uh, that's true. And, and this, you know, there is a valid, for lack of a better term, enforcement or, you know, sanity check or, or whatnot you want to use there to keep the vendors moving towards security and force them to care about security. But I think you're 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 dead on in that the marketing aspect or the notoriety aspect of this is driving some behavior that may not be best for those of us on the enterprise defense side, uh, where these researchers become they get a lot of press and they get a lot of fame and influence or whatever by throwing these out there. And that's I'm not judging it other than from the view of an enterprise defender that can make our life more difficult. Yeah. So, so like in the, again, notwithstanding the possibility that somebody independently came up with proof of concept code, but in the case of log4j, it wasn't a situation where they were, you know, the, the, the vendor was dragging their feet. It was quite clearly done for marketing purposes. And, and so the, I think the the point of this article, at least to me is when that happens, the beneficiary isn't us, the consumer. It's the threat actors. Devil's advocate. It forces them to patch faster. Maybe. 
Well, I, them, I don't. I, mean, I don't disagree with that. I mean, look, that's. Yeah. I guess that's another. We got a, the last story talks a little bit about that too. But right. you're you, no, you're 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 right. It does change our behavior too. Uh, Log4j was, I think, somewhat special in that there was so much press around it that so many v- companies were getting hit up by third-party risk management from their customers and partners that it forced a knee-jerk, all-hands-on-deck reaction from a lot of companies. Uh, but it's also something that, like you mentioned, is so deeply buried I mean, there's a lot of mess with Log4j. There's a lot of there's a lot of problems with vulnerability scanners that were picking up just versions of Log4j with no ability to look at the logic of the mitigation that turned off the problem. As a, mm-hmm. as an example, there there's yeah, there's there was a lot of problems there. And then the follow-on patch, the follow-on patch, and the, like one researcher jumped on this, and about seven thousand other folks and their dogs started hitting up Log4j for other problems. Because, back to your point, the notoriety and the marketing of this very popular newsworthy vulnerability, you got a whole lot of people jumping on that bandwagon. Anyway. Everybody wants to get the call from Good Morning America to come on and talk about how bad the thing they found is. Right. All right. (laughs) We will be talking about this again in 10 years. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, it's a tough problem. And... I will say that of a lot of our topics, I usually have a pretty definitive opinion. This one, I'm kind of wandering back and forth on what what's best. There's, there's no, I mean, there's no objectively right and 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 always correct answer. It's you know kind of situational, which doesn't lend itself to uh, you know to good behavior. You know, one other takeaway though that I'll say on this, and then we can move on. At least with Log4j, what what I heard from a lot of folks, because I can't talk about my own company, and Bob, Bob was telling me a lot about this. One thing that made this even more difficult was how much tech debt existed at the point of Log4j's discovery. And what could have been a simple point release upgrade became much more complicated due to how many versions back certain components might have been that were relied upon. So that's something else to consider is keeping things current for the sake of keeping things current has a benefit when you get these mass vulnerability problems that it cannot easily be predicted and that it's a minor point release as opposed to a forklift upgrade to solve that problem. Yeah. And, and by the way, if you actually have embraced the whole concept of DevOps and are actually in a cycle of releasing and not just uh, you know taking the the bits and pieces that you like to to streamline and and cut back on 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 resources and headcount that will uh, that will also help. So yeah, I, the the other one I think we talked about it last time or one of the recent times is I you know it was quite alarming at how much really really old log4j was in a lot of environments and a lot of you know even like modern software like apache kafka like that there was a i don't know what they're if they've released a new version since but the you know right as uh as log4j the log4shell vulnerability was coming out the most recent version i think was released in september 2021 and it still had like an eight-year-old version of log4j in it 
Yeah, it was a 1.x version, which had its own right. vulnerabilities, but was also very end of life. So the problem with that was the current log4j stuff was not officially, or log4shell stuff, was not officially tested against the 1.x stuff because it was end of life. Now, it turned out to not be vulnerable to log4shell, but there, if you were purely going <laughs> on what was in the national vulnerability databases or the CVSS scores or whatnot, there's a blind spot, typically, for a vendor testing these new exploits against end-of-life software. Yeah. So, so if you're running end-of-life software, you actually don't really know right. what vulnerabilities are out there, typically. Exactly. And so in that in that case, a lot of organizations were, were kind of wringing their hands saying, like, are, is it... Is it not listed because it's not vulnerable, or is it not listed because they didn't test it? And so I think a lot of you know, a lot of organizations took the safe you know, the, until they found out otherwise. They took the safe, um, you know, conservative view that it must be. And and so, you know, I, my my experience was lots of cycles were burned thinking about what to do with all of these kind of intractable dependencies inside critical pieces of software again like apache kafka and 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 lots of others kafka is the one that just sticks in my head for some reason um probably for because of the name i guess um well it's also very widely used yeah right it's one of the biggest examples of a 1.x log 4j that's causing a lot of pain we do people just got vapor locked like what like we we know how to fix 2.x but what about this 1.x like we what right. do we do about it and especially when it's no built into a third party software you don't you can't upgrade that component you've got to wait for them to upgrade it right exactly but your vuln scanners are going crazy on it exactly that's right all right our last story comes from CSO online and the title here is prioritizing and remediating vulnerabilities in the wake of Log4j and Microsoft's Patch Tuesday blunder. Oh boy. Woo. So the you know this is a concept that comes up again and again and again. And the, the the real crux of the issue is you know how best do we prioritize the vulnerabilities we go fix, you know, in in general. Like it would be awesome if we could fix every vulnerability that came down the pike you know, immediately, but we can't, we don't have infinite resources. We don't have the, you know, an unlimited ability to test and deploy and take systems offline and so on and so on. And so we, we end up having to make priority decisions. And in a lot of organizations, those priority decisions, as they point out in the article is based on CVSS score, but they really point out that CVSS score is intended to be an assessment of, severity of the vulnerability not of risk and then they go on, well not not in its default use if you correct. really read the cvss score you're supposed to then modify it for your environment correct to get your true score nobody does that by the way but that's what you're supposed to do correct and we everybody's supposed to have an army of 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 uh, security analysts to take in to ingest all of the cves and run it through the you know the CVSS uh, you know three dot one you know local local scoring and and they, they even point with, out by the way with perfect asset management and awareness of all of their environment parameters absolutely which everybody has absolutely so um, 
you know, they point they point out that obviously that is the intended way this this works. But if you take two perfectly rational analysts and have them in this, you know, in the same environment and have them independently assess something, they'll come up with different scores because they have different contexts, they have different awareness. And a lot of this, by the way, comes down to the imagination of the analysts in how they think it, it might materialize as a, as a problem. And so if somebody can easily envision how this could happen, you know, they'll obviously uplift the score. And if someone can't imagine how it would be used, you know, the, the opposite will happen. And then they go on to point out, in as in the case of uh, of log4j, the scores aren't necessarily constant either. So, so you know, we obviously with the, the initial log4shell, it was um, I think it was rated as critical right out of the gate, and that was the right call. And that that they released a, was it two point fifteen, and then a couple days later. There was a denial of service vulnerability identified, and uh, and that was rated, I think, a medium. But then a day or two later, it was determined, no, it's not really a medium. It's actually another uh, remote code execution flaw. But by the way, a remote code execution flaw that people still haven't figured out how to use. Yeah. There was some, uh, yeah, go on. Don't, don't, mm. <laughs> so they, so 2.16 came out. And then there was another remote code execution vulnerability in 2.16, which released 2.17. And then there was yet another remote code execution vulnerability, um, quite publicly um, intimated on Twitter by, a, by a, <laughs> another security researcher, uh, you know, that was was uh, claimed to be another, again, another serious remote code execution. Looked like, oh my gosh, here we go again. But, you know, when you look under the covers, uh, in order to exploit that, you actually have, an adversary has to have the ability to reconfigure log4j to be vulnerable. Now, here's one of the problems I saw during this entire event, which is that the third-party risk management questionnaires that were flooding everybody's inboxes certainly did not have that level of knowledge of the nuance behind all these different exploitability issues. They were asking very broad questions. Well, they were, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and they all proceeded as if each subsequent release had the same level of severity as the initial issue. And, you know, the, the head of, um, uh, was it, somebody in DHS that I can't find the exact quote basically said, you know, the, the only one that really turned out to be a big problem was the initial log for shell vulnerability. All of the subsequent ones are, are, um, are, are still without ac actually any working um, exploitable uh, instances. Like people don't know or haven't found any, any uh, applications where that flaw is exploitable. And yet, that didn't stop the, uh, you know, the vendor questionnaires. Yeah, the the quote was from uh, CERT Coordination Center vulnerability analyst Will Dorman. Thank you. Yep. Lost my highlighting. Gosh darn it. So then that dovetails into 
what happened with Microsoft. We talked about that last time. So as, as I think everybody's probably aware, Microsoft released uh, on their January Patch Tuesday cycle a fix for a critical vulnerability that they called Wormable in their uh, HTTP stack. And they actually went off and, and uh, strongly encouraged everybody to go patch this. It was a, a flaw in Windows Server. And, uh, and, and so quickly it became pretty widely known that if you were running domain controllers, Hyper-V and ReFS, uh, you were going to have a bad day. And, uh, and I think it was three days after the initial release and, you know, people were, you know, <laughs> it's kind of an uncomfortable situation because on the one hand you're being told, like, you, you feel like you're living on borrowed time with something like WannaCry or, or, uh, you know, other, other terrible worms of the past. Like we got to get this fixed at, you know, right away. But at the same time, if you apply the patch, it causes your systems to go into an infinite reboot loop. Which is unfortunate, but let's also keep in mind that that's fairly rare. True. Uh, but this hurts a lot because as a proponent of patching, patch early, patch often, this sort of hurts that credibility and the trust. Exactly. And that, by the way, I mean, I think it does, it is relatively rare given the number of patches that Microsoft releases, but it actually is, it seems like it happens a couple of times a year. Yeah, and it's also devastating when it happens. Right. And the, the, the challenge for me, at least, is that it, it, um, it creates ill will towards the concept of patching rapidly. And it, it drives, you know, it, and by the way, like you always should be, pat, you always sh- should always be testing your patches. But, you know, now we're, we're, we're developing this, um, the skepticism in oper- in IT operations people saying, oh, oh, here's another Microsoft special that wasn't tested. You know, we, we got to go test this thing 10 ways from Sunday before well, we there out- was a standing article put out every ta- patch Tuesday for home users. Like it was more consumer focused by a computer expert brand, magazine brand, that always came out around patch two. It says, turn off automatic Microsoft patching because patches break things. <laughs> that drove me crazy. And again, I mean, look, there's a lot of culpability on Microsoft's part here for not having better QA around these patches. Let's, let's be clear, especially in this one. It looked pretty straightforward, like they should have caught this in testing. I don't know what happened. I wasn't there, but it looked pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it sucks. It, it's a problem. Yeah, and you know, they, they go on to point out in this, in this article that there are other instances, like um, recently we talked about the, uh, the problem with colors and faker libraries and Node.js, and so on. You know, you, you, we really do have to make sure we we have a we're, we're we're both patching rapidly, but also exercising appropriate due diligence before we do patch. I mean, those well, are- we we've seen supply chain attacks, especially like with Solar Winds, that abuse the patch mechanism to push out malware, especially mm-hmm. the auto patch mechanism, which sucks. It's like 
I mean, it's using important tools against us. But there's now a risk with patching and a risk for not patching that we have to figure out the balance to. And how do we mitigate both of those risks? Oh, absolutely. Now, on, on basis, generally, I think you'll be better off patching. But, you know, the, again, no... <laughs> well, it's also tough to stand before your 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 board and say, "Well, we're out. Our outage was caused by a patch that we applied, as opposed to our outage was caused by a third party attacker." Yeah, that that's true. I I would say that you'll have a lot easier time with regulators like the FTC, the SEC, you know, whoever else, explaining that. You know, you had a, a an outage because you were applying a patch provided by a legitimate patch provided by one of your your technology providers. Then, uh, you know, we we decided to slow roll it and we got hacked. I, yeah, I, I mean, that's just that's just bad news. Like, I, I mean, if I if I got called in front of Congress, like I I know which one I'd rather defend. Well, if you get called in front of Congress, I'm making a lot of popcorn and. Drinking a lot of beer. <laughs> so, so will I. <laughs> that would be epic. Uh, no, it wouldn't. It'd be terrible. Well, for you, yes, but for the rest of us. Indeed. Anyway, there's like a lot you can unpack in this article. It actually goes into a lot of detail and a lot of sort of pros and cons. It also talks about some other scoring met- methodologies uh, that he brings up. Uh, other than CVSS, that is meant to be a little more, I guess, objective in setting prioritization. Uh, I suddenly lost the name of it. It's here somewhere. It's the, it's the shareholder-specific vulnerability yeah, categorization framework. Um, which, uh, admittedly, I don't know a lot about. I'm actually going to look into it because of this article. Uh, I thought that was interesting. I, I also like that a lot of vulnerability detection tools out there are starting to give you some more insights into if it's highly exploitable, if known exploits exist. Uh, I think that sort of stuff can go into your prioritization. Context yeah. aware. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Like known known exploits existing is probably one of the more significant. And by the way, that's like one of the. If, if you look at what's going on right now with this uh, pwn kit in the the, uh, the pretty significant vulnerability in pull kit which affects you know just about every damn Linux version under <laughs> under the sun you know it's it's a local privilege escalation which typically would not be considered critical but there is you know really trivial to, to use exploit code and by the way it's also pretty alarming that there's a, like a eight-year-old blog post that explains how to exploit it but the person didn't who wrote the, the blog post didn't realize what what the, uh, the what it what he was seeing meant so kind of kind of interesting uh, but you know when, when you have exploit code like that it enables attackers uh, to chain things together and so maybe you know they had a they had an initial entry but they you know they were only user nobody and so they didn't have a way to ex, you know, to elevate their privileges, and now they they have a trivial way of doing that. So you know, it's it, in in that in that kind of case, you know, I would say, yeah, it's more it's more critical than uh, you know than a, a maybe 
another local privilege escalation that doesn't have proof of concept code and isn't so prevalent. I mean, also if it's got like a catchy name, a logo, its own website. Well, clearly. Absolutely. Ideally a jingle. Uh, Yeah. I mean, all those things, uh, they, they have to factor in. Like you, you, you can kind of think of like a checklist, mm-hmm. you know, like a, does it have a mascot? Right. Does it have a, a theme song? Does it have a web? You know, did, 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 did they have to go through like multiple naming iterations? Is there swag around available oh, on, for oh, it good. on Cafe stickers. Press? Yeah, there are stickers available. Right. 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 I like this. Yeah. This is good. I mean, we have to come up with a name for this framework. Hmm. Can't be, uh, you know, can't be CVE or CVSS or SSVC. Like we got to come up with something cool. We will. We'll think about it. Like we'll Llama. If we, if, if we could, if we could, the acronym could be Llama. That would be, or <laughs> Alpaca. <laughs> I, I think we can make that work. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we've reached. I'll, I'll think on that for the next show. We've reached peak productivity. On our way back down. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so I think we beat that one in the ground. I think the real takeaway is, although the sad reality is I think most organizations just follow CVSS and that's all of the, that they have time for. To do this more robust prioritization, I think, is takes a lot of time and energy that a lot of companies don't have, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. I get, I get where they're coming from. And I don't disagree that there's better prioritization methodologies. Uh, we sort of stopped at CVSS. Right. But here's our, here's our opportunity to go and, and write that wrong. With Llama prioritization framework. That's right. Like it. Does it spit? <laughs> this is going to be great. Oh, this is going to be great. For all four people still listening we're to gonna us, be, you've heard it here first. We're going to be trillionaires. Look out, Apple. <laughs> we're coming for you. All right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I think we'll I think we'll end it there. So thank you all. It's uh, great talking to you again. Hey, it's it's not been six months since the last one, so that's a win. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely appreciate everybody um listening and to those of you who continue to donate to the show uh there's a few still left thank you very much yes thank you you guys Um, are awesome you can find the this show and all of our 260 other episodes on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org you can follow mr callet on twitter at lurg and you can follow me on twitter at malicious link although i'm usually not there nobody's home as they say uh, you won't notice a difference. Ouch. I know. I'm sorry. Ouch. That was that was a little harsh. Ouch. All right. Have a good one, everyone. <laughs> Bye-bye. Take care.